welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar Aparicio, and this week, the, it's a Womp Womp Wednesday, and the elegant tank continues. Tomorrow is the final Battle of the Bay, and boy, Derek Carr versus Nick Mullins sounds like a raiding bonanza. And as always, with me is one Mr. Jared Brown. Jared, how you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me, as always, previewing a game coming sooner rather than later. It's oddly exciting. And now I guess we can officially make it official. Official. How many times can I say official in one sentence? Uh, co-host of the Better Rivals podcast. Welcome aboard, my friend. Thank you. Officially official official. Yeah. And, and to commemorate this, of course, you were doing the one thing that all Better Rivals hosts must do when they are official Better Rivals hosts, and that is consume a frosty alcoholic beverage. So, Jared, what are you drinking today? I'm drinking a, a Hanalei Island IPA from Kona Brewing, although not located in Hawaii currently, unfortunately. Jesus, that was fancy. Oh, you got to sell like, it, you I'm, know, beer snob and uh, otherwise it just, I'm, you know, if I'm going to be pretentious, I want to be full pretentious. I'm surprised. Like, I'm, I'm not even <laughs> mad. That's great. I love it. I'm over here sipping a Spanish red wine. It's great. Like, I don't even know what it's called. I just know that it's Spanish. That's all you have to know. Yeah. I mean, it, it, we can ask. I don't know. There's got to be a sommelier somewhere on Twitter that could tell us based on bottle what it's well, all about. The, the reason it's Spanish is mostly just to help me pronounce Garriguiam when we get to that section of the podcast. So, you know, it's just going to loosen up the tongue. I've often said that's how alcohol and uh, linguistics are tied together. <laughs> that's right. Take it from a Spanish teacher. Them's the rules. Uh, so let's talk about the uh, the old Cardinals game because boy was it! Um, I mean, it was a it was a pretty good kick to the groin, is what I'm going to say. The Niners advanced, of course, in the tournament for the first overall pick, and and it was a game that it seemed like the Niners had in hand. I mean, they they had a safety, they had two turnovers, everything looked like they were going like it was going to go the 49ers way, and they were going to get their win. And uh, and now all of a sudden it's uh, 15 to 18, 49ers lose, and they continue their march towards the first overall pick in the draft. They are, and I think that's a good thing. You know, ultimately sort of fan reaction, and I'll admit that I get, you know, caught up in this as well. It's hard not to you know, root, root for the team and, and want them to do well, but in reality, sort of stepping back, you know, Monday afternoon, looking at the totality of the season, this is the best possible thing that could happen because not only do the 49ers get another loss, but a team that they realistically, as we mentioned last week, they're in direct contention with the Cardinals to be in one of those top three teams to be picking in the draft. So to have the Cardinals at the same time that the 49ers lose, the Cardinals get a win and build their record up, you know, as rough as it is. And as, as you mentioned, as poor of a game as it was and the way that they lost was almost worse. Uh, overall, a good outcome. And of course, I think if you've listened to us long enough, you know, we've been riding the elegant tank here for a couple of years, but this is not to say that we think that Shanahan is tanking or that the team should actively lose games. It's just that if they're going to lose, well, they're going to reap the draft rewards. I think the picture that sticks with me is, I don't know if you saw it, but it's a picture of Shanahan in the locker room after the loss. And he has his back to an equipment cart and a football in his hand. And he's just staring off into space. And it looks like someone killed his puppy. And that picture is really emblematic of the season because Shanahan, no matter his best efforts, still sees this team with a, just a lack of execution and execution problems. And those are ultimately resulting in, the lo in losses. And that's, I think, my biggest takeaway from the game against the Cardinals is that the execution issue strikes again. The 49ers were playing well the entire game. They allowed just, or well, for most of the game, they allowed three points and accounted for 40% of the team's offensive points in the first half. I mean, this game was shaping up like it was going to be a win. When the Niners scored that long touchdown, Marquise Goodwin ends up on the, the long catch and run. At 12-3, and three, the lead seemed insurmountable. I was already being like, okay, well, you know, two wins, whatever. We lose a little bit of draft position, but hey, we won a game. And, and then all of a sudden, it all falls apart in the end. And, and it's squarely on the shoulders of execution and not much else. Uh, and, and it starts really with some of those fourth quarter drives, especially when backups came onto the field. I absolutely agree. And again, we mentioned it a little bit with CJ Beathard as a backup and some of these, the DB rotations and stuff. There was a clear drop off and, and Josh Rosen, Byron Leftwich, who was calling his first game. These guys suddenly looked like they were, you know, realistically much better at their respective positions, quarterback and play caller, first time play caller than they might normally be. I think what 
we saw happen, particularly when some of those backups went in, as you mentioned, Jaquiski Tart, probably the uh, worst in terms of uh, the backup success or lack of success from the backup that you saw. What happened were the middle of the field defenders and really the middle of the field as a general field area began to immediately get exposed. And I think some of that has to do with the fact that Jaquiski Tart, when he is sort of those that, that underneath cover three defender, he has a lot of versatility as a run defender, but also as a pass defender and an ability to match tight ends over the middle of the field and an ability to deal with stronger receivers over the middle of the field that the players that came on or rather the defensive rotations that they had to make when he went off, those players weren't capable of doing the same thing, particularly in that final drive when the Arizona Cardinals went ahead. It was first and 10 on the Arizona 38 and Rosen hit Larry Fitzgerald sort of uh, up the seam. 20 yards down the field to this SF 42 and Quan William K1 Williams looked to sort of pass off Fitzgerald kind of on this, this, you know, sort of seam ish route, but a little bit more outside the hash than typical. And there was another miscommunication, a lack of execution from Fred Warner at this time, who was kind of the, the inside defender there that it looked like K1 Williams was expecting him to wall off Fitzgerald and pass him off. As you mentioned, it's just a stark lack of execution that keeps showing up. And I don't really know what Shanahan can do except sort of say, look, when we've got our guys, they can compete. But there's such a fall off that when the backups are getting in and we're going to see backups this Thursday, it just doesn't look as good. Yeah, I mean, at, at the end of the day, I think the, the coach still needs talent and the best coach in the whole wide world is still going to need talented players to execute on those schemes. Even after that play that you mentioned, that 20-yard pass to Fitzgerald, the, the 49ers still had a 69% chance of winning the game per ESPN's win probability kind of metric. It's based on a lot of Chase Stewart's work, I think. And, and, and that, that's a pretty healthy probability of winning. It's certainly not an insurmountable percentage, as, of course, the 49ers proved. But it's definitely within the realm of, like, the Niners should still win this game. But I think, as you said, you, you're 100% right. I think Jaquaski tart uh, was a, a a big loss in the secondary. And then you have his backup come in, and then he comes out with a concussion, Antoine Exum Jr. And then you've got Tyvis Powell, effectively the third safety, someone who probably got maybe, maybe five practice reps this week just based on how the practice reps come out. And, all, and, and that's really when the defense fell apart. If you zoom in on his performance, both touchdowns were pretty much his fault, which kind of sucks. You've got second and 10 from the 13-yard line, 11-11 left in the fourth quarter. The Cardinals are in 22 personnel in a trips left formation. You count wide receivers from the outside in. So you've got Chad Williams at one, Fitzgerald at two, Ricky Seals-Jones at three. The Niners are in cover two, so Powell has to be aware of the post route. I mean, this is exactly what beats cover two. He's got to be aware that this is going to be the danger for the coverage. That's exactly what Fitzgerald runs at him. Powell plays with outside leverage and opens his hips super early. It's an easy touchdown for Fitzgerald. I think one point that you brought up is that this guy, I, I don't know that many fans recognize this, and even it took me a while to realize this, that practice reps aren't doled out evenly in the NFL. If you're the third string guy, you're getting barely any, and the majority of your snaps come as a scout guy, sort of giving the offense or defense other looks. So as you mentioned, Tyvis Powell's not getting nearly as many practice repetitions as the team would like, but he still has to be ready to go in. And you brought up a good point with cover two and this recognition of, 49ers defense, uh, any other defense. I mean, these cover two principles about where you have leverage, where you have help, what you can't get beat on, because sometimes that's part of the teaching technique is saying, look, don't just don't get beat on this. Powell has to know that whether he's getting the practice reps or not. And so his, his technique there and, or rather lack thereof, or a lack of a, an understanding of where the threat or the soft zones in the defense are is, is pretty disconcerting from a, from a long-term development regard that I, I don't know how this team sees, you know, how this player could develop, uh, if he can't really play within a defense, at least in that very basic level. And then you've got the second touchdown. It's, it's third and goal from the nine with 39 seconds left. 39 seconds left. This is basically the game-winning play. The Cardinals come out in 11 personnel and a two-by-two -two formation with Christian Kirk as the one receiver to the left and tight end Ricky Seals-Jones in the left slot. He's the number two receiver. The 49ers are in cover four, which is a pretty good defense for this formation. A two-by-two, -two, you've got cover four. That's great. 
we're all Salah seems like he's learning. He's not calling as much cover three in the red zone as he did early in the season. He's got two high safety looks here, and this is great. The defense looks well primed to be able to defend the, whatever Arizona is going to throw at them. Witherspoon is out wide. Powell is matched up versus the tight end in the slot. Well, Seals Jones runs an out route, and Kirk runs a dig. This should be a simple pass off on a two man concept between Witherspoon and Tyvis Powell. And Witherspoon handles this perfectly. He is there and he takes the tight end who's breaking out into his zone. But Powell takes a step towards the tight end on the outcut. And that's just enough for Christian Kirk to get right behind him. And, and all of a sudden, you've got a touchdown with 30, you know, on that play. And, and Josh Rosen knows exactly what he's going to do. And he throws it right as he's breaking behind Tyvis Powell. I mean, on the game, Tyvis Powell earned a 27.5 coverage grade. And and this is exactly why. When you've got your third string player who can't execute, it doesn't matter what defense you call. It doesn't matter if you're going up against a rookie quarterback. You have to be able to execute. And your third string safety just isn't going to do it. And that's how you end up losing uh, 18 to 15. These are common sort of issues that you might see from a, a lack of practice reps together, right? Witherspoon, not rather Powell, not really under or knowing if Witherspoon's going to be able to take that out or jump that out or whatever you want to call it as the out comes into his zone. But overall, in terms of principles of the defense, this is high school football stuff. This sort of passing off routes in a cover four, or cover two shell. Powell needs to know that. And like you mentioned, him taking that step to the to the tight end in the NFL, those windows, that's that's all it takes. And the quarterback's looking for that exact step. And he's anticipating that if he gets that, to throw it now. And that was all it took for Kirk to get behind him. Kirk is not, Christian Kirk is not some stud receiver that's been in the league with a ton of nuance and veteran presence. And yet the 49ers, at least, you know, have have done well to make him look like a serviceable, if not much better receiver. And I know that their offense didn't look great until really that fourth quarter, but it showed up when it needed to. And the 49ers didn't. And the coverage grade from Powell was indicative of this stark contrast that when these top guys go out, these starters go out, there's not really the depth needed to continue to compete. And and it's starting to show more and more every week as the injuries keep coming. And so I think you get to other drive stalling mistakes. You've got, of course, the the zone read in the red zone late, which was a bit of a bobbled uh, kind of mesh point. And so the Niners are driving and all of a sudden you bobble the snap. CJ Beathard can only gain a yard. It puts you behind the sticks. And now it, it changes the way that you call uh, the, the other plays in that drive. You've got the high snap, of course, which may have cost uh, a chance at overtime, which is probably a blessing in disguise, to be honest with you, because you have your backup center in Eric Magnuson, who... Sounds like he should be deadlifting 500 pounds and maybe not playing center. Uh, and then you've got uh, Josh Rosen, who decided he was going to be phenomenal under pressure. And this is ultimately, I think, what swung the game. He was only pressured on 22 point, uh, on 22% of his dropbacks, which was just about half the rate that he was pressured the first time the Niners played the Cardinals. But he had 104.2 rating and a touchdown when under pressure. And when blitzed specifically, this includes some plays where he was blitzed, but he was not under pressure. He was four for six for 55 yards. That's 9.2 yards per attempt. And his passing grade was 85.5. So really, I think the difference in this game is that Josh Rosen, as a quarterback, was able to step up and make plays against a talent-deficient 49ers team. And they were able to execute. The Niners weren't. And that's what swings two scores. And that's ultimately what swung the game. I wonder if, like you mentioned Josh Rosen improving as a quarterback, maybe Byron Leftwich paring down the playbook a little bit and giving him some com- some things that they knew he could be comfortable with. But just looking at that percentage from a philosophical standpoint, thinking about, you know, a rookie quarterback on a bad team with a bad offensive line, you know, not tremendous uh, outside weapons at receiver and and trying to get after a player. I just don't know that pressuring him on 22% of his dropbacks and, and statistically he did well when he was pressured. But I wonder if you if you ramp up that percentage of pressure, uh, what it what his statistically what it might look like. I think, as you mentioned, Josh Rosen played well and played well enough to win the game there at the end. But I have to think that the 49ers defense, had they brought more pressure, would have found significantly more success long, you know, throughout the entire game. Yeah, well, I think this gets to kind of the, the, the point that we're making, right, which is that you can't just will pressure into existence. You could maybe blitz a, a, a little bit more, but the Niners still need someone who can consistently pressure the passer. And until they have that, they're not going to be able to put teams away. 
And, and Shanahan alluded to that specifically in his post game conference uh, press conference when he said that you know we just we need people to close the game out. And I think he's talking specifically about pass rushers. So yeah, I think if that's what what cost the, us the game, and sure, that's that's great. That's we're gonna talk about what cost us the game. I think a lot more this season as we progress. But that still doesn't mean that there aren't little moments of greatness within the game that are super interesting and super fun to watch. And for me, honestly, this game, it was the running game and it was Shanahan's run calls because Shanahan doesn't just call great pass plays against the Cardinals, the drive across the third quarter and the fourth quarter. That was the 49ers most successful drive of the day was really, really uh, it was it was awesome to watch happen play after play after play. They start the drive, and they're running an inside zone. Okay, it's a punch to the inside. It doesn't do all that much, but it's, it's the opening blow of the drive. A couple plays later after play-action pass, they run a pin-and-pull concept, so you're hitting the defense to the outside. That's a big gainer. Pin-and-pull is a great concept. It basically combines some gap-and-zone concepts and allows players to get to the edge with the down block from Kittle, and Kittle now is basically taking a run-blocking victim just about every week and smashing him to the ground. And this was almost there. Not quite, but almost. A couple plays later, you've got a fullback trap, which is another inside quick-hitting play. Poor defensive tackle ends up on all fours and then gets just squished on by the pulling guard. It was hilarious. And, and then, I mean, it just continues from there, and it's just... You've got these amazing plays where Shanahan is hitting you inside. He's hitting you outside. He's hitting you with play action. And it's just an amazing thing to see all of these plays come together. And we haven't even gotten to my favorite play, which is the toss read shovel. It's a phenomenal option play. I mean, it's just it's a beauty to watch Kyle Shanahan's offense, even in a losing effort, which is why I think it's it's still fun to pull these tidbits out even though the game didn't turn out in the win-loss record exactly where we wanted it. It absolutely is. It's still fun. It's really, really impressive to watch. And just like players or players in any game, football, basketball, whatever, as just as they can get in a rhythm, play callers can get in a rhythm. And you can see when Kyle Shanahan gets in that rhythm, whether it's his first scripted drive or whether it's some of these mid-game drives where he's made adjustments. And it's it's like a heavyweight boxer that's, that's mixing up punches in terms of landing spots and punch style where as you mentioned all these plays that you're going through they're so versatile it's such a unique scheme that you don't see this much efficiency from a team doing these this many different things at such a good looking level I think some of that comes from George Kittle being an absolute monster athletically really showing up as a versatile weapon that can run block coming from Iowa can do all of that well. But what he does in terms of high energy athleticism and, and being a threat in the past game, I think has made boxes a little bit easier for them to deal with. And overall you're seeing a scheme that if there is a silver lining to some of these losses, this scheme works, this scheme works well. For the most part, they're playing with, with poor or you know, I don't want to say poor because they do have some players, but overall not ideal talent, particularly at skill positions. And these these plays are still being run at a, at a really effective level. They look really good. The simple fact that Cal Shanahan has the 22nd ranked offense based on PFF's kind of Massey ranking, which takes players grades into account uh, with a backup quarterback for the majority of these games, is phenomenal. He's literally taking a replacement-level player and he's making them into like the outskirts of average. And that's pretty phenomenal, I think, personally. And, and that's exactly why I think Kyle Shanahan should continue to... I would love to see Kyle Shanahan complete his six-year contract and get an extension because I think he's the right man for the job. But the, the running game, even though the plays were called and they were called well, the running back timeshare is a little suspect. And now, of course, Matt Breida, he's seemingly coming back to health. Mostert seems a bit like a revelation. But now we've kind of got this this third wheel, if you will, that seems to be robbing uh, important touches from players that maybe should be getting them. Absolutely. And when the 49ers began the season, I think the loss of Jarek McKinnon, the unexpected loss of Jarek McKinnon, for the season sort of threw an immediate wrench in their plans. Because up until then, they didn't know that Matt Breida was going to be who he is. C.J. Beathard is this backup that is sort of running Kyle Shanahan's offense who has them sort of at that 22nd rank, as you mentioned. But Matt Breida up until this year was 
considered the backup running back as well. So in theory, they've really got two starters at these premier skill positions that the 49ers wanted to utilize. They've actually got two backups there rather than their first, the the two starters that, that are hurt. Brita, however, has played as, as obviously somebody that's a much higher level than just your standard backup. What's happening behind Brita, though, is really intriguing for a variety of reasons. I think they signed Alfred Morris with a little bit of uh, haste and not necessarily that the signing was poor, but that they needed to find somebody that should Brita not be what he has been could in theory be the lead back in Kyle Shanahan's offense and not long term. We're talking a year, maybe two as a backup, but ideally McKinnon's coming back. So you're not looking for a guy to be your long term fix here. It was going to be somebody that could come in off the street, learn the playbook quickly and do well enough. So they sign Alfred Morris. And the problem is he's getting more touches than he should now. Now that we recognize that Matt Breida can be a starting running back in the NFL, the backup behind him, Raheem Mostert, is actually balling out as well. And he should be receiving really the flip of the, the, the touches that they're getting. Right now, Alfred Morris is getting, has on the season 83 touches for an average of 4.2 yards per touch. And that average is actually going down. Whereas Raheem Mostert has 33 touches for an average of 6.1 yards. And he has some big plays, but on the whole, he's running hard and running well. Morris has two fumbles to just one for Mostert. So by many sort of on-field metrics, whether we look at sort of a speed and explosiveness standpoint, when we look at average yards per touch, what Mostert can do as a receiver, in many ways, Mostert seems to be, at least now, the more productive and better player. Throw in the fact that he's probably a long-term core special teamer if they want him, and it's hard to see why Alfred Morris is continuing to get critical carries when Mostert is showing a skill set that might actually rival the other two backs on the roster or the other two backs that were going to be on the roster in Brita and McKinnon. And I wonder how that, that snap share might be switching or ought to switch moving forward. You know, I, I totally agree with you. I think this is, this is, I think, the conflict that Kyle Shanahan feels between knowing he probably needs to evaluate players, but also understanding that he trusts a couple of guys and he's got his people and... And he needs to give them snaps because he thinks they're going to get him closer to winning the game. And this is this is the conflict that he's got to run into. And and I don't envy the man because he's he's got to make some tough decisions. But I 100% agree with you. I think Mostert is more productive, more explosive. And I think he should be getting the lion's share of carries at this point. I think that Morris should be getting close to maybe like maybe maybe short yardage touches, maybe. Um, and even then, I probably think that's too much. But there are lots of places where the 49ers should probably try out their young talent, and I think we're going to get to see some of that against the uh, the Raiders maybe with uh, Tarvarius Moore here in, in, in just a couple of weeks. But there's uh, there's one more, I think, player that you wanted to talk about before we get to our spotlight players. So let's let's talk a little bit about Ruben Foster because he's um, you know he's playing with now with like only two or four appendages. He's, he's got 50% of his appendages that are working, uh, and the dude's still playing. He is, and credit to Ruben Foster, he plays hard, and he's not going to make excuses, but he suffered a hamstring injury late in the first half against the Cardinals. He didn't come back, and that's one of the first times that we've seen sort of him not do that on the field, off the field dance in games. He's officially been ruled out for Thursday night's game against Oakland, and I think that's actually a good thing because it's been very clear since the start of the season, after serving the two-game suspension and coming back, He's just not the same player that he was last year. I don't believe that this is a long-term thing. I don't believe that Reuben Foster was a flash in the pan and now suddenly he's a bad player. But I do believe that he's banged up and that it's he's banged up to the point where he actually can't play the way that he plays. And the way that he plays is what makes him special, right? He's not some massive run thumping linebacker that w- without, you know, without a good leg can still just fill the a gap. This is a player that has to rely on speed and power and athleticism, really explosiveness also to be an effective linebacker. And he just hasn't had that this year. And I'm, ex- I'm not excited, but I'm glad to see that they're sitting him for this week and that he's going to hopefully take some time to recover Ironically, what we're also seeing is that his backup, Elijah Lee, at least in terms of PFF grading, is playing significantly better in many important categories than Reuben Foster. Comparatively, their grades this season, Elijah Lee's overall PFF grade is 67.5, which is above average, whereas Reuben Foster is 42.9 and below average. Against the run, Elijah Lee's in the mid-60s and Foster's hovering right around that 50. Elijah Lee as a tackler is 
almost at the 80 mark. He's at 78.7, whereas Ruben Foster is at 28.3. This is at the linebacker position. You've got a linebacker that, at least by PFF grading, is a very, very poor tackler. Lastly, in coverage, Elijah Lee is almost 20 points or 20 grade points uh, higher than Ruben Foster. So across the board, Elijah Lee is outperforming him. And certainly sample size matters here a little bit because Ruben Foster's been on the field sort of in terms of snap count more than Elijah Lee. But when Foster's not healthy, he's not he's not good. He's not good at what he does well. And it's showing on the field that he can't play at the level that he ought to. So as the season moves forward, it's going to be interesting to see if the 49ers actually give him the time that he needs to sit Because as you look at this roster up and down, it's not competing. There's no need for Ruben Foster to remind us all how tough he is. We get it. Let Elijah Lee keep playing at least for another week or two, because statistically, he's actually the better player right now. Now, We both went through Scouting Academy, and we both completed different modules, but we both had to go through the intro module. And one of the things that stuck with me, among other things, because it was was a great course, but one of the things that I remember was uh, Dan Hatman. He's the, the scouting director and basically our teacher for most of the course. He always preached context when evaluating a player. You have to know as much as you can about the context in which that thing is happening. And there are some obvious things. There are things like, you know, the maybe the, the type of coverage they're playing or what the scheme asks them to do. But then there are other things like their injuries. You do expect that players play injured, but you have to take that into account when you're evaluating that player. And I think that's exactly what's happening with Ruben Foster. I think in the context of his career, this is going to be his trough, his dip. And he's going to, I think, go back to the heights that he was playing at last season. But I think he's just playing injured right now. I tweeted out a clip a couple of weeks ago where he's literally running with one arm. Literally, his other arm is dead along his side, and he's trying to reach out for a tackle with one arm. And I think that's affecting him. Who knows whether it's going to be a long-term career effect kind of thing, but at the very least for now, that's the context in which we have to evaluate Ruben Foster. And so, yeah, maybe Elijah Lee is playing a little better than him right now, but I don't think that in any way, shape, or form that is a uh, uh, an indictment on the talented player that is Ruben Foster. I think, to your point, Jared, you're exactly right. Just sit the dude. Let the guy rest for a little bit, and uh, and let's go ahead and play some players and, and continue marching towards that first overall pick because uh, I think that's going to help the team more than a, a rando win here in the middle of the year. But let's get to the spotlight players. Uh, let's get to your spotlight player first because it is a rookie that's been getting uh, a lot of pub lately because he is the best at his position in his class. Who's your spotlight player? My spotlight player this week is Mike McGlinchey, who since the time the 49ers drafted him, and cliche come in your way, but he's not a sexy pick, right? The offensive line, it was a position that needed to be evaluated long-term, whether they had Trent Brown and Joe Staley or not. It was something that they needed to look at for the future, and I really identify who was going to eventually be the quote-unquote left tackle of the future. But it's not an ideal position to take in the top 10 by many standards because people want to see the premier edge pass rusher, the, the quarterback, the, you know, the really breakout superstar player. Well, Mike McGlinchey has been that. In week five, he was on the Pro Football Focus Team of the Week all across the NFL for dominating at his position. October 25th, he had a 78.4 overall grade as the best rookie offensive lineman in the league. Not tackle, but best rookie entire offensive lineman. And this week, he improved even more. His overall grade now sits at 80.2, and that's six points ahead of the second place player, which by PFF metrics is actually quite a bit. He continues to do well in just about every manner. Almost once a week, you see one of those dominant run-blocking performances where he he shows everything that you want to see from a long-term player in regards to speed and power to get outside on the edge. He has the understanding of leverage and angles to meet second-level defenders in gaps or or as they scrape across. He has the strength to anchor against very good pass rushers. And every once in a while, he's going to get beat. But by and large, he's playing very, very well. And in a season that we see not so many players playing particularly well, it's really encouraging to see that John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan and Adam Peters and who's ever part of this evaluation for a top 10 overall pick, they knocked this one out of the park. Mike McGlinchey is an absolute stud. My spotlight player this week is going to be Jaquaski Tart. He had a very, very good game against the Cardinals, and I think that you can judge that 
based on what happened when he left. Uh, the 49ers definitely felt his absence. We, we talked about what happened when his backups came into the game, but he had a textbook interception earlier in the game where he, he faked like he was going to blitz, drops into a hook zone, and reads the quarterback's eyes, breaks on it, and, and eventually gets the pick. Basically, the, he got something that the 49ers defense has not been able to do, and especially considering he dropped one the week before, I think it, it's a good comeback for Joukowsky Tart. Overall, in his last four games, he has performed a lot better than he has at the beginning of the year. Three of the last four games, he's graded above a 72. And of course, anything in the 70s is above average. And and that's exactly the type of player that we thought we were going to get all told with, with Jaquaski Tart because at his peak, that's where he was. He was a, a kind of a, the high end of above level. And he was definitely trending towards that place now that he was finally getting healthy. But now, of course, he's injured. He's been ruled out for Thursday. And we'll see what happens when when the 49ers have to trot out, uh, I guess, a backup to a backup here against the Raiders. But for me, Jakowski Tart played a hell of a game. He finally got that coveted turnover, and he was trending up before injury. I would like to see so him really quickly. I just would love to see him play an entire 16 games. Because this is it feels like this has been the maybe the third time that he's been with the 49ers and has been sort of at this precipice of being... Of a really high level starter, it's too bad that that this continues to happen for him. Yeah, because I guess he broke his arm last year, and then the year before was his rookie year, and, and I don't know that he played a ton. I think he played a little bit, but um, yeah, I mean, I think you know injuries uh, obviously are just like everything else; they're going to regress to and fro, and hopefully, we're going to get back to to more normal injury things because uh, I don't know that it makes sense that every single player that we have that that matters is is injury prone. I think some of this is going to regress back to the the non injury mean next season when we're going to uh, I think have a more complete and better team around uh, a quarterback who's actually been played to start or being paid to start. Uh, but let's get to the uh, really quickly. I want to talk before we get to the Raiders game. I want to talk a little bit about the trade deadline because. Just about everyone in 49er fandom uh, basically had a meltdown because we were not adding talent. And, and I think we have opposing views on on one specific player. And I want to hear why you think maybe adding someone like Dante Fowler was, a, uh, was the right decision. Uh, maybe a decision that was missed by the 49ers. Of course, if you missed it, if you've been living under a rock, Dante Fowler was traded to the Los Angeles Rams, who are all in. They traded a third-round pick this year and a fifth-round pick next year for the, the basically an eight-game rental on Dante Fowler because his contract is up at the end of the year. The Jags did not exercise his fifth-year option. So he's on the final year of his deal, and, and the, the Rams picked him up as maybe a piece to help them get to the Super Bowl. And I think that is not a move the Niners should make. I think, though, that you, th- you think otherwise. So, so walk me through your thinking. I don't think otherwise. So I actually agree with you. But I was trying to rationalize this from a fan perspective or sort of from, a, from the opposite viewpoint. Because I'm actually in agreement with you here that the Rams got Dante Fowler because the Rams want to win a Super Bowl this year. The 49ers because are not winning this exactly. Super Bowl. So there's no need to go get Dante Fowler because Dante Fowler is actually not that great. But if, if he hits for the Rams, exactly. fantastic. They won their one Super Bowl. But oh. no, I totally agree with you. I, I think Fowler Fowler is good, and honestly, the the shitty thing is, is that Fowler would probably be the best edge rusher on the 49ers he roster. Would, for hands, sure. down, hands down, he would be. And and he he is in my mind a situational pass rusher. That is where he excels. But if we wanted a situational pass rusher, we could go get Elvis Dumerville. That dude's still hanging out somewhere. And and you know, I think that that's the kind of thing that you would get from someone like Dante Fowler, a third and a fifth is a lot to give up when your most valuable asset right now is your draft position. That That's how you want to build your team. When Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch talk about building this team long-term, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about not kind of throwing all your chips into the table unless it is your time to do so. There are certain teams that should do that. The Rams are one of them. They have a rookie quarterback, on, or they have a quarterback on his rookie deal, and that is probably the most valuable asset in football. A good quarterback on his rookie deal means you can spend a ton of money everywhere else and really increase your chances to win the Super Bowl. And that's what the Rams are doing. I think the Philadelphia Eagles are doing much the same. They are teams that understand that at their position right now, they have to go all in in this first window before they have to retool 
and and change the way their roster is constructed and then attack in another window. The Niners, unfortunately, didn't get the benefit of having a quarterback on his rookie deal that was good. They jumped straight to the second contract quarterback. And that means that they have to find efficiencies in the way that they pay their players and efficiencies in the way that they find other premier positions. And that, I think, to me, means they have to find an edge rusher in the draft. If you're not going to pay your quarterback rookie contract, then pay your premier edge rusher at a rookie wage scale and you're getting an inefficiency on one of the other kind of coveted positions in the NFL. So that's why I don't think it makes sense to take an eight-game rental on Fowler because the price was too high. You're not going to win anything this year. And then there's no guarantee that you sign him. And if you franchise him, you're paying him $18, $19 million. And he is not $18, $19 million good. He just isn't. He's not. Like you mentioned, the 49ers third round pick is going to be somewhere in the 60s, the late 60s at best. And the Rams third round pick is going to be closer to the late 90s. So in terms of overall value, like the, the 49ers definitely could not spend that kind of capital on this player. They're, they're, they're not anywhere near close. What, an eight-game rental for Dante Fowler to do what? To come in, even if the 49ers just absolutely run the table with Dante Fowler suddenly this premier pass rusher. And yes, he's definitely an upgrade over Cassius Marsh. But, but for what? To go nine and seven? To definitely not compete for for the Super Bowl. So, like you mentioned, the Rams, the Chiefs, the I can't remember the other the other team you mentioned, excuse me, the Eagles, but all those teams with the rookie quarterbacks, yeah, you're you're the team that goes out and gets these guys, and that's exactly what we're seeing. The Chiefs are spending money to get premier players. Rams built a defense of a ton of high-priced players because they're going to do it for a year or two, and then they're going to hope that they've cashed out and actually won a Super Bowl or two in that window. But overall, the meltdown over the non uh, non noise or the lack of stuff happening in Santa Clara during this trade deadline is a little overblown because the 49ers aren't in a position to start buying players for eight games to try and make this final playoff push. Yeah, it, it just it's absurd to me to think that everyone thinks that you should just continue to spend all of your resources, all your valuable resources on players that aren't really going to help the larger plan. I think it was always year three when Shanahan was going to really make the push for the the kind of dominance that we would love to see from this team. And I think the ACL injury definitely sets the team back. But next year is still the, the year where you're really going to see, I think, some of those moves. I think in year four is where you start to see the 49ers making some of these moves. But that's after they've been able to draft an edge rusher or two in the draft. I mean, you think about Fowler. Fowler was, of course, drafted high. But what did the what did the Jags do? They drafted and uh, I'm always going to screw up his name. You it's it's a tradition that you have to script someone's name here on the better rivals podcast so yannick ngakwe no, that I think perfect is how you yeah it. that's not the one you're screwing okay. up tonight then because that was good yeah apparently uh but yannick ngakwe it was a player they drafted later because they, they picked up two edge rushers in the same draft and i think that's what the niners should do that pick up two drafts pick up two players in the same draft increase your chances the draft is an absolute crapshoot that is what everyone's like oh well this team doesn't know how to draft. They drafted Solomon Thomas and blah, 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 blah. It's like, well, you know what? The, 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 all of the math about the draft says that no one is really bad and no one is really good. It, it's a lot of chance and luck that's involved. Adam Thielen is the perfect, perfect yeah. example of like if, if drafting were really a science, Adam Thielen would never have slipped through the He'd cracks. be a top 10 pick. And yet he – exactly. That's exactly right. And yet there is a lot of variability and, and, and there's no GM that has it all figured out. And so there are going to be GMs that have good years and bad years, and they have ups and downs, and you want to increase your chances of hitting on a player. And that's why you take two edge rushers. This is why Washington taking two quarterbacks, RG3 and Kirk Cousins, you know, you look at which one panned out, it was Kirk Cousins. It's the same thing. The Niners should do that, and what they need to do that is picks. They don't need to give up picks on one player who's not worth a franchise tag. He's definitely not, and as you mentioned, the 49ers, as they continue to build these picks, or, or rather you know, stockpile these picks, just looking ahead at the draft class, this next year is not particularly good. 
So to trade your picks away and have less capital, less ammunition to be able to maneuver around the board to get the few guys that you need. Because when healthy, the 49ers aren't terribly far away, but they do have a couple very specific positions that they need to target. The more ammunition that they have to do so, the more that they can maneuver around to get exactly where they want to. And you only do that by having more picks to use as draft capital. The more that they can move around, the better they're going to be moving forward and trading those picks if for a short-sighted move is is in this case a good evaluation by John Lynch, Adam Peters, and their team to say thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, especially when you look at the draft class this year at edge rusher, this is going to be the class to get an edge rusher because there are so many quality edge rushers near the top as compared to last year where there was like basically two players. Uh, one was Chubb, the other was Davenport, and then some people had a boner for Josh Sweat. And and basically only one of them has turned out to be like super amazing and Chubb because he's had, you know, of course, Von Miller on the other side uh, of the Denver defense. He's also been OK, but not great. And and that's it. They're basically three players. Uh, and and I think in this year's draft, you've got a lot more. And so this is the draft to get an edge player and the Niners need ammo to do that. They do need ammo and they've got. I mean, like you mentioned, this is a great year for it. They've got the time to uh, spend evaluating these players that they're going to see in the top 10. The 49ers, obviously, you'd like to land at first and be able to go get Nick Bosa. But if they don't, there's going to be some some second secondary secondary choices there that, that they're going to like. The only reason I didn't start watching Bosa film this week is because it was a short week and we have a game on Thursday. But if not, I'd probably be watching Bosa film tomorrow. <laughs> Got to do it. Got to start getting prepared. Tomorrow is oh, tomorrow Thursday God. night or today when you listen to this. This is the original. This is Bosa preparation. The 49ers are playing this game entirely in preparation for Bosa. That's exactly right. So speaking of this game, all right, let's talk about the final battle of the Bay. Man, before the Raiders moved to Las Vegas uh, and they fully embraced their, you know, landlocked pirate core. It'll be the, the battle uh, for let, Mandalay Bay. The, That'll oh, be it. Well done. It a little ca- well casino done. wordplay. <laughs> oh, man. I like it. Well done. All right. So it's this is now... We're, we're in the throes of the blow it for Bosa tournament. I mean, this is it. We are moving on to the semifinals before, of course, the finals against the Giants. And, and both of these teams are just not good. I mean, the Raiders, when you look at their overall Massey rankings their their elo ranking overall puts them at 31st the niners are at 28th of course elo ranking is pff's ranking that takes into account the strength of opponent uh who they beat who they who they didn't beat uh, and puts that into a ranking the raiders offense is 28th the niners offense is 22nd this is of course pff's offensive ranking defensive ranking the raiders are 29th the niners are 31st this is basically going to be uh, a lot of players and, and two teams that are just not very good at football that are bumping uglies, and, and it might come down to, quite frankly, the quarterback because Derek Carr is not bad at football and C.J. Beathard and Nick Mullins may actually be bad at football. Definitely not as good, or rather Derek Carr is definitely not as bad as they might be. We're going to see a uh, an ugly Thursday night game. I just don't think that there's any other way to slice this. We see ugly Thursday night games between decent teams and two teams that are coming off of an, another poor loss, a rough season, a rough season for the 49ers. The Raiders are trending sort of, I don't know if you can trend up, but they sort of beat the defeated the Derek Carr noise about wondering if their quarterback's crying. So they, if, if there is a sort of upward projection for either of these teams, it's probably the Raiders, but in either case, they're not particularly good either. Is that their biggest one of the season? It has the, to be. Defeating the 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 perception that their quarterback was crying. That might be their biggest one of the year. It's it's it seemed like that's where they put all of their effort, quite frankly. I mean the tight end came out and had this long soliloquy about Derek and Derek Carr I'm sure is a phenomenal player. But why are we spending time discussing whether a quarterback was crying? Neither of your teams are good. One of your coaches is not good, definitely being overpaid. You're leaving for Vegas with a <laughs> stadium that's falling apart and a fan base that's angry. Thursday night is not going to be particularly fun unless you want to sort of embrace the suck, unless you are a major fan of the blow it for Bose attorney, in which case this is this is exactly what you want to see on Thursday night. Let's just yuck it up in front of everybody. Well, at this point, Football Outsiders has the Niners as leading the league in the percentage chance of getting the number one overall pick at 32.6%. Second place 
in that race is the Raiders, and they're at 17.1. And of course, the thing that might help the 49ers is the fact that C.J. Beathard, while tough as all holy get out, finally cracked. His hand is injured, no breaks, but it was definitely in a soft cast, and that's not good news. And that means that on a short week, it might be Mullins' time. And in the land of backups, Nick Mullins is maybe not king, but like, I don't know, like the treasurer. He's like, he's like not super important, but like maybe he manages the money. Because in a very small preseason sample, he has 47 snaps, super small sample. Mullins was just about as good as Beathard. They both had above average grades. Nick Mullins ranked 15th out of 51 quarterbacks with at least 47 dropbacks in the preseason going up against backups. So look, if you're looking for upside, if you're looking for any semblance, any glimmer of hope, it's that Nick Mullins may actually be a hidden gem and he is just enough above average at football that he could will this team to a win against the Raiders defense that is porous at best. Either way, I feel like this is a win-win for the 49ers in their front office. If they lose the game, again, as we mentioned with the Cardinals, the Raiders are another one of those teams that are in contention for a top-five pick. And every win that they get, particularly if it means a loss for the 49ers, is a good thing for the 49ers. And on the flip side of that, if Nick Mullins plays really well, maybe he keeps playing, and then the 49ers have an opportunity to evaluate him. I don't know. I do know Nick Mullins is not a long-term answer at quarterback for the 49ers. <laughs> no, no. He However, it, maybe he's more than just a practice squad guy because the 49ers seem content to just hold two quarterbacks going into the regular season this is the second year in a row. It looks like that's sort of the MO of this front office. So if Nick Mullins can become the guy, is there some sort of, you know, whoa, a new quarterback controversy here in, in Santa Clara between C.J. Beathard and Nick Mullins? In any case, at least statistically in the preseason, Nick Mullins didn't do too bad. Fans obviously love him and gave him the, I can't remember what was the little cute nickname. I think it was Mullins time or something, which is sort of silly. It can't be everyone's time every it, time they do something good a for little, the 49ers. It's a little reductive. I think Garrett Selleck would have something to say about that. He has to, who hasn't ironically had any sort of time lately he hasn't done very well but nonetheless this game looks like it could come down to specifically who has the best quarterback and whether it's Nick Mullins or CJ Beathard it's a pretty obvious edge to the Raiders provided John Gruden doesn't get in the way yeah you know I think that you're absolutely right I think oftentimes the game is decided by the best quarterback and that quarterback in this game is very very clearly Derek Carr Despite the fact that whether or not you think he wears guyliner or whether or not he cries, the uh, fact is he is not playing terrible football this year. And and when you think of the, the I think the the chance the Niners have is that the Raiders defense is incredibly porous. Their DVOA on the year so far, which is now adjusted for opponents, is 29th. The Niners defense is just 24th. So the Niners have a better defense than the Raiders. The Raiders are giving up running yards basically to everyone. And when you look at last week against the Colts, they gave up three touchdowns to tight ends. So I think that when you look at the Niners' strength on offense, the running game, and in the receiving game, their tight end, and when you look at what the Raiders don't do well, which is defend the run and guard against tight ends, I think you have an opportunity for the Niners to score bunches of points. And I guess for the Niners, now bunches of points means somewhere north of 28 and that could be just enough if the Niners' defense actually comes to play. It absolutely could. I think the 49ers have a, a unique opportunity, if there is one at least in this case, to see how Kyle Shanahan stacks up against John Gruden, who you know 15 years ago was considered a strong offensive mind. But the Raiders' defense isn't particularly good either. And if the 49ers can continue to score at least a little bit or, or do score at least a little bit, they have an opportunity to win against a bad team if they can create some, you know, Thursday night. Teams are tired and beat up, bodies are sore. Maybe the 49ers come out with a little bit of juice and energy and steal a couple early touchdowns on the Raiders. All right, so which would you want? As a fan, as a human, it's the last battle of the Bay. There is this kind of intra-Bay rivalry between the Raiders and the Niners, even though I guess it stopped being really a rivalry when they stopped playing in the preseason because people got a little stabby. Uh, so which would you prefer? Would you prefer losing this game and effectively locking up a top-two pick or winning this game and having perpetual bragging rights against the eventual Mandalay Bay Raiders 
and and kind of having those bragging rights until you're old and gray. As of now, the 49ers don't play the Raiders very often anyways because of the violence in the stadium. So I'm all for lose this game. Who cares? When you go to Las Vegas in a couple of years, in theory, we'll be better and we can put it on them and that'll be phenomenal. And until then, we'll have to deal with the Raiders fans that are all excited about getting that last win over a meaningless 49ers team. And these are not two high-level franchises right now. This is not the Pittsburgh Steelers and the New England Patriots who for the last 10 years are always in the playoffs. These are two teams that are at the bottom of the barrel right now struggling for any sort of competency. So a win, at least in this case, is absolutely meaningless. It doesn't do us any good. And I know it's really hard, but lose this one. Let it go. Everybody enjoy your Thursday night. Stay safe, but let the Raiders have this one. Absolutely agree. I think what's better for the franchise is to just let it go, man. Let it go like a Frozen song. I'm sure there are. It's Halloween. I'm sure there are lots of Elsas out there. Just embrace the costume. Let it go. Let it be its own thing. uh, And off you go. But there are some matchups to watch, though. There are a couple things I will be watching. Uh, Number one, Tyvis Powell versus Jared Cook. Of course, we had a segment about Tyvis Powell earlier. But Jared Cook, actually good at football. He leads all tight ends and targets inside the 10-yard line, uh, and while he's not the all-world beater tight end that maybe George Kittle is, you think that that's a mismatch right now between Jared Cook and Tyvis Powell. And and that's what I'll be watching, uh, at least initially, for when I'm watching the the Raiders' offense. Uh, Is there any offense or or any matchups that you'll be watching, Jared? I'm excited for the matchups that actually aren't on the field. I want to see Kyle Shanahan versus Paul Gunther, who is an established defensive coordinator, but who is working with a very bad Raiders defense. And while the 49ers defense isn't particularly good, Kyle Shanahan might be able to make this defense look really, really bad. So without a premier edge rusher, which the Arizona Cardinals do have, Chandler Jones, both games has played very well against them. The Raiders don't have that player. It, it Maybe Arden Key as a rookie, you say he's kind of impressive, but he's still overweight and not that good. So I'm excited to see how Kyle Shanahan exploits this matchup defensively. And sort of the flip side of that, John Gruden, who not so much anymore, but in his heyday was considered an offensive mastermind, may have not sort of caught up with common NFL or modern NFL stuff. But I'm really excited to see how Robert Sala continues sort of his development as a defensive coordinator going against arguably one of the best to do it in the last probably two decades. Do you you think the Raiders are going to actually play Bruce Irvin now that they didn't trade him? Because that would be awkward. That would be so uncomfortable. Because, again, he's not, like, great, but he's, I mean, he's not bad at football, and he's good at rushing off the edge, uh, and I think they were maybe kind of keeping him under wraps because they were hoping to trade him. Didn't happen in the fire sale, and now, all of a sudden, you've got a player that can actually rush the passer. I think you're right about Arden Key. Not great, at least in year one, uh, but I think, hopefully, we don't see a ton of uh, of Bruce Irvin. Um, I will say this, though. I'm throwing the gauntlet down right now. On Thursday... If John Gruden runs Spider 2 Y Banana, we both have to finish whatever drink is in front of our face, preferably alcoholic. Deal. Deal? Yeah, I f- that's, the only, that's the only reasonable. I wonder if he can get on like the Thursday night broadcast headset and let him know what's coming, you know? Give him a little chance to get the little the play-by-play hit in there, run, you know, run Spider 2 Y Banana. Just that might be a way to make this game exciting. Yeah, we'll just be because the on-field product workout. probably won't be particularly good. Just constantly be to every play, you're just you're just hoping. Uh, so the other matchup I'll be watching is George Kittle versus Carl Joseph. Uh, one Mister Joseph is five nine, just five nine, a shade under five ten. We'll call it. Uh, George Kittle taller than that, uh, and George Kittle is also good at football. And, and so I'm hoping that George Kittle becomes more of a red zone target if the Niners get down into the red zone, which I would expect that they would at least a couple of times against this Raiders defense. And so I think that Joseph, because of that physical mismatch, may end up a little bit like Jimmy Ward versus Brandon Marshall in the red zone. Uh, And so that's another place that that I'll be watching for some matchups. It's basically going to be all tight ends all day or day because those are the the, the only things to watch at this point, at least in my eyes. So that's going to be, it's going to be interesting. Honestly, I'm, Full confession, I'm not nearly as hyped about this quote-unquote rivalry as I think other fans are. I really couldn't care less. It's just not going to be a particularly good game. And and there is a way to embrace that and to enjoy it. It's Thursday night football, and in some regards, that's nice. But on the whole, this this is going to be a game between two bad teams. 
And at least for the 49ers, they could potentially be on their third string quarterback, a guy that is only the third string quarterback because most teams don't want to go to their third string quarterback. It's not like he had some, <laughs> it's not, you know, he didn't have some tremendous uh, season long campaign where it's like, we've got to get Nick Mullins back in here. He, he had some, we had some fun in the preseason with him, but uh, overall, this is not, I don't know that this guy's ready to be on national television as a starting NFL quarterback. And maybe I'm wrong, but to look at this game and, and be uh, excited and, and anticipating something magnificent is just not going to be it. All right, so hit me with your prediction. What happens? The Niners are currently favored by two and a half points at home, which means it's effectively a pick because the home team usually gets three points. So what do you think is going to happen uh, in the game? Do you think the Niners win? Uh, did they win but don't cover? Well, what's, uh, what's coming at you? I think the Raiders win this one straight up. I don't know that it'll be by much because I don't think they're particularly good either, but I really have a hard time seeing. I mean, at least on, at, early on in terms of uh, Levi's stadium life, these, you know, sort of a Thursday night game against the Raiders between two bad teams, this is not a, the 49ers are not a team that routinely sells that stadium out, that fills that stadium regardless of the product on the field. So there's no real, uh, you know, sort of quote unquote, home field advantage here because the 49ers aren't very good. So the stadium's not going to be particularly full anyways, but they're playing the Raiders who are also in the Bay area. So there's going to be plenty of Raiders fans in the stadium. So on the whole, I don't know that this field in terms of advantage for the 49ers is particularly strong. And because of that, I think the Raiders pull out a win against a bad 49ers team on a short week with a lot of dudes banged up. I think I'm going to give you a choose your own adventure here. And I, I think that if Nick Mullins plays, the, the Niners probably end up losing just because Derek Carr is a much better quarterback than Nick Mullins. And oftentimes, I, I think games like this come down to maybe who the best quarterback is. And that's clearly Derek Carr. I think if CJ Beathard ends up playing, it, it's probably a little closer. But I do think at the very least, the Raiders cover. And if I were a betting man, uh, and I'm not really into the whole betting thing, uh, I would probably bet on the Raiders to cover. Even on the two and a half point spread, uh, I'd probably bet on the Raiders to cover. I think that's wise. Overall, just not a particularly good looking week for the 49ers. The Raiders aren't particularly good, but like you said, it's a quarterback driven league. And right now, head to head, the Raiders guy behind center is better than either that the 49ers are going to trot out tomorrow night. All right, man. Well, I think that wraps it up for this week's show. Uh, the game is tomorrow, so hopefully in, everyone enjoys the Thursday game. If you are indeed going to the Thursday game, be safe. Don't be dumb. Uh, it's just a football game. Enjoy it. Cheer, yell, scream, uh, and then get home and be miserable at work on Friday uh, <laughs> because that's probably yeah. what I will be doing. Uh, I actually have a meeting with my CEO tomorrow uh, debating whether or not I should wear my Niners jersey. Is that That's where I'm at right now. Oof, are you leaning towards wear it or not wear oh, it? Oh, man, I don't know. This is only like the fourth time I've been in a, like a work meeting. Like we've said hi and, and you know, near the coffee station. Oh, hey, how's it going? Like, you know, blah, blah, blah. Near the urinals at one point. He's a urinal talker, which is weird. Um, oh, she's right? a sociopath. Is there anything worse? Um, but no. but never in a work meeting. Uh, so like, well, maybe prime time prime time NFL game with Nick Mullins <laughs> quarterback. But yeah, otherwise, yeah. But yeah, but I think uh, you know I'm probably leaning towards wearing some kind of Niners paraphernalia. It'll be a conver- it'll be a conversation piece. I think. All right, man. Well, where can they follow you on Twitter, Jared? Follow me on Twitter at Jared Brown underscore J E R O D Brown underscore. I promise this is all going to get better. There's no, it can only go up because we just keep losing and acquiring draft capital. We are blowing it for Bosa. Absolutely, and you can always follow me at Better Rivals. Uh, you can see my Solomon Thomas article about why he should be playing on the inside on Niners Nation. You can see all the clips of the run game that I was talking about earlier this episode on the Twitters at Better Rivals. So. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in. Have a fantastic Thursday Night Football. And as always, Go Niners! My name is Spencer Hall. My name is Jason Kirk. My name is Ryan Nanny. And when we combine, we form the, the Shutdown, Shutdown Full Cast. Full Cast. Full Tron. 
I keep telling you, we're not Voltron. The Shutdown Fullcast is technically a college football podcast, but it's also a show about lawn care disasters, regional grocery stores we love, Tennessee Batman, homeowners associations, bears and video games. I mean, there's also some actual football discussion, like about coaches having huge contracts or coaches making terrible decisions or coaches saying really stupid things. Or the NCAA saying really stupid things. Yeah, there's lots of stupid things in this big, dumb, beautiful sport. Sometimes we talk about football games. Allegedly. If you want to take college football exactly as seriously as it deserves to be taken, come find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts like this one. The Shutdown Podcast. It's not Voltron.